Material in this program is intended for general information only and should not be taken as specific investment, tax, or legal advice. None of the information contained in this broadcast is intended by the host to be a solicitation for the purchase or sale of any security. SmartVestor Pro is for customer service only and is not connected to investment returns. Further information is available by contacting Richard Ng Associates, a registered investment advisor. Welcome to Money MD, where the money doctors are in the house and giving out prescriptions for better financial health and making smart decisions with your money. We give common sense solutions to your complex problems. I'm Steve Marbert, a certified financial planner and investment advisor with over 20 years' experience providing financial planning and investment advice. And I'm John Travis. I have an MBA in finance, also a Dave Ramsey Smart Investor Pro, and have over 20 years in helping corporations and individuals with planning. We're excited to have you listen to us today on our weekly show. Our podcasts are up exclusively every week on Friday afternoons on uh, moneymd.net and also on iTunes. Yeah, and to get access to the to the uh, podcast, Steve, just go to the website, moneymd.net. We have a link on the right-hand corner. You can click that. It'll take you to a, a another website. It's called Podbean, kind of interesting name, but that's where we house all of the uh, all of the past shows, and we have it broken down into different topics. So you can check us out. You can listen to past shows. We make it easy. Absolutely. Yeah, also do check us out on our website um, and uh, email us directly if you'd like to. You can email us on, from the website, you can link to us, give us your questions, and we'll cover those here on the show. Um, or you can email us directly at info at moneymd.net. Speaking of emails, you maybe want to careful what you put in that email because they're probably archived somewhere, right? Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> the presidential election. The presidential emails. election. So emails. I, I got gotcha. you. Okay. Yeah. That's right. I mean, <laughs> that does lead us right up to the whole email topic. Yeah. They can always find your emails somewhere, right? Yeah. They, if you think you deleted them, you haven't deleted them. So. No, right. <laughs> Somebody's got a copy of them somewhere as uh, Hillary is finding out here. Yeah. Um, but, you know, speaking of the elections, I mean, there's a lot of kind of tension going on in the investing world about the elections there, coming up there here. There is. And surprisingly enough, the market is is worried that Trump's going to win. And they're pricing, they're kind of starting to price it in a little bit. It's been a yeah. little bit of a negative. The market's week. been down like six days in a row now, mm-hmm. um, and it's it, they, they say it's because you know Trump's kind of gaining momentum, and which is surprising. I guess it's the uncertainty of having a different administration, different president. If he did win, you know what would he do to the stock market and earnings? But gosh, I would have thought that would have been all positive. News. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting that, you know, the markets, like you said, don't like uncertainty. And, and at least with, with Hillary, you kind of know what you're going to get. You're going to have increased taxes. There's some other things that some people like, some people don't. But status quo. Yeah, basically. status quo. That's right. With with Trump, it is somewhat unknown. I mean, he has some policies out there, but certainly more of a wild card. Yeah, that's right. So uh, interesting thing going on. But I, I, I have to say, regardless of the fact that the market has tightened up, I mean, the race has tightened up. I don't think Trump really has a good chance. Of winning. I don't either. We were talking about that, you know, a couple minutes ago about the electoral electoral college, college. and it just doesn't seem like there's a path. Right. Um, Even though he might get the he might get the popular vote, mm-hmm. um, but he has isolated some states. You know, with some of his rhetoric and some of his policies, he's, you know, he's he's lost. He can't win New Mexico because of the Latino vote there. Um, so when you look at the path electorally to getting there, he has to win Pennsylvania. He has to win Ohio. He's got to win some North Carolina. Right. North Carolina. He's got to win some hard states, Colorado, Nevada. And, you know, for him to pull down all those states, mm-hmm. uh, 
Gosh, he'd he'd really have to pick up quite a bit in the it's last. It's almost going to be like maybe Carolina year. beating Clemson this year. It's kind of setting up that way, isn't it? Be kind of a long shot, <laughs> wouldn't it, Gee, John? <laughs> I I'm, you know, I'm I, I'm a realist. You know, I'm, you know, I don't live in dreamland. So that's right. That's right. Hey, but the good news is if you're if you're a Republican, you know, or don't want to see Hillary in, um, the, the Republicans probably are going to retain the Senate. Mm-hmm. I think there's a good chance of yeah. that, and they'll certainly retain the House. Right. So there'll be some balance. So, so there's going to be some balance. It'll be, at worst case, I think it'll be status quo like we have now with you know an administration that wants to do one thing and Congress wants to do another. And we've had some of the best stock markets ever mm-hmm. during times when it was a divided, divided Washington. Yes, that's right. So, hey, it's all going to be positive in the end. <laughs> but or total optimist. Total optimist, that's right. Don't read too much into it, though. All right, um, we do have a great show lineup today with all that introduction, um, and you know we're going to talk about some things you don't want to do here at the end of the year, right? Yeah, there's some some year end moves that you want to make sure that you um, that you make in some cases, and some other ones you want to make sure you avoid. So we're going to dive into five year end uh, mistakes to avoid in your portfolio. Yeah, that's going to be a good one because uh, we're coming into the home stretch here of the year, last couple months, and uh, you definitely. We want to avoid some common mistakes that we run into. You know, another thing out there that we're going to talk about is is rental properties. A lot of people have rental properties. We have a lot of clients that have it. It's a great way to build some extra income. It's not a passive investment. Um, but a lot of people don't want to deal with all the headaches of it. So the question is, should you have a property manager? Mm-hmm. You know, is, is it worth the cost? What does a property manager do for your rental properties if you have those? And if so, you know, is it is it worth the price? We're going to dig into that a little bit. There's a great article here um, that talks about all the details of that. So, um, you know, even if you don't don't have a property manager, thinking about real estate, we talk about a lot of these issues in this article. It's really good. So you'll want to stick around for that. All right, but we're going to start off here with the financial fact of the week. Yeah, this comes from the National Bureau of Economic Research. And uh, the U.S. economy, Steve, has been growing for uh, for about 87 months straight with no recession. And that's an expansion that's only exceeded in length uh, three times since 1900. So now the growth, I think there'd be people that would argue on the other side, yeah, it's up 87 months in a row, but the growth has been very, very slow. Not like a typical. It's been very low. It really has. And so, you know, if you look at where we came from the Great Recession back in 2007 and 2008, it really had nowhere to go but up. But 87 months is still impressive. That's a very long period. There's only been three other times since 1900 that there's been a longer expansion. But again, the growth has been very, very anemic. Yeah, well, it's kind of like taking a trip, you know, to the beach or something, and driving five miles an hour, John, mm. and saying, wow, you know, we've been on the road now for three days, you know, three days, <laughs> you know, this is amazing. The car is still going because <laughs> you're only going five miles an hour. Yeah, you know, you'll never is. get there. And that's kind of what's happened in the economy here. I mean, we've been growing at less than 2%, mm-hmm. even coming out of the Great Recession. And we had, you know, two, it doesn't even feel like a, a expansion. I mean, no, it we, doesn't. We had two corrections in the past year, mm-hmm. two major corrections in the, in the stock, stock market, market right. in the past year. So, you know, it feels like we've already been through a recession, quite frankly, and I'm, I'm hoping we'll come out of it here and actually start seeing some positive growth in the stock market, which this quarter is is kind of shaping up mm-hmm. to to maybe see positive growth in earnings for the stock market. 
So that's a positive. Yes, it is. Eternal so, optimist. Uh, there you go. There you go. Eternal <laughs> Mr. Optimist so, today. So, yeah, I think we might be on the path to, to actually seeing a little better growth, but we'll, we'll see how that goes there. Yeah. Interesting fact of the week. Yes, though. it is. All right, that leads up to our first topic here, and that is the uh, year-end mistakes to avoid in your portfolio. Yeah, Steve, you know, as the calendar winds down, investors, I mean, you read articles, at least we do, and we see a lot in the news. You know, there should be some things that you do, like, you know, make sure you review your your portfolios, you do some rebalancing, maybe you look for some uh, tax loss candidates as well. And that's really because, you know, the end of the year, December 31st, is the deadline um, for most of these changes that you can make that will affect affect your tax bill this year. So you have to make these changes by year end. Um, but, you know, some of these tasks are certainly at odds with um, one another, specifically what makes sense from a portfolio standpoint may not make sense from a tax. So if you start making, you know, buying and selling and so forth, you could have some pretty significant tax issues, and you want to make sure that you understand that. For example, the practice of rebalancing, um, you know, involves selling some of the winners in the portfolio. Um, well, the, the tax-savvy investor, you know, should be doing the opposite, maybe looking for some positions to sell to generate losses. So there's some trade-offs that you have to look at, and you can't go willy-nilly into this. And you got to have a plan and, and so forth. So as this year winds down, here are some of the, the year-end portfolio mistakes to make sure that you avoid. Yeah, that's right. Number one is kind of rushing into, you know, a portfolio overhaul here at the end of the year. Um, I mean, we would argue you really don't want to do a complete overhaul of your portfolio probably any time if you have a good flaw, the right philosophy and mm-hmm. if you're diversified. But you certainly don't want to rush into it. Um, if you are going to make major changes, you know, year end's kind of a good time for portfolio review, certainly, I mean, in large part because 1231 is kind of the deadline for a lot of changes that impact your tax bill, like the tax loss harvesting that you just mentioned. But, you know, the fourth quarter is also a very busy time of the year. And with the holidays and deadlines, you know, at work and home. Um, so, you know, that's going to cut into your time for planning for your portfolio. And if you find yourself crunched at as the year winds down, don't try to cram in a full portfolio overhaul review. You know, instead, think a little more surgically about, you know, what's going to give you the biggest payoff. I mean, is there some tax loss harvesting you can do, something specific that mm-hmm. you can do? But don't just go on and do a wholesale, you know, change in your portfolio if you don't have time to really address it properly and make sure that you're doing the right thing. Yeah, there's some pitfalls in there. Absolutely. No doubt. So one of the things you can do, Steve, is is make sure you're contributing the maximum to your 401k. Um, you know, if you're contributing to like a traditional type of 401k or, or IRA, that's going to help your taxable income this year. And for those of you that are over 70 and a half, you may have something called a required minimum distribution. Uh, you may need to sell something to shake some of that money loose. So you may want to start with those holdings that have been associated, um, you know, with the good returns over the last three or five years. And they, you know, on another note, kind of tied into this, you can actually take your RMD and contribute to a um, to a nonprofit. So some some of our clients want to take that RMD and and, and give it as a uh, as a gift. Uh, over there. So that's one of the strategies that you need to consider. If you hold taxable accounts, it's a good bet that many of your holdings are selling above the cost basis. So, you know, you got to make sure that um, you're focused on individual stocks. Uh, Emerging markets have done very well. You know, if you've realized losses elsewhere in your taxable portfolio, 
or some funds that are making big distributions, you can you can use those losses to offset gains up to three thousand dollars in ordinary income. So again, this is a big one, Steve. I think if if you're not comfortable with you know tax loss harvesting and some of those other strategies, that's where working with an advisor sometimes helps. Um, you can do some research and read on this, but just don't go you know quickly into it without you know understanding the consequences. Yeah, absolutely. That's exactly right. And you know, speaking of which, you don't want to automatically kick the laggards to the curb. That's another big mistake. I mean, tax loss harvesting would, would kind of imply that that's what you're going to do. You're going to sell the ones that uh, that have the biggest tax losses. Um, but, you know, putting those on the chopping block, everything, just selling them, you know, below your purchase price, um, that can be a mistake too. I mean, there is the reversion to the mean that does happen on occasion and you know if you just sell last year's underachievers because that gives you the biggest tax savings um unfortunately you know i mean those are the same ones that may come back and i mean for example look at emerging markets mm-hmm. um you know last year last few years emerging markets were were terrible but those have come back and those have been the leading asset class this year so, you know, if you had to kick those to the curb just because that was down mm-hmm. and you didn't buy it back. Yeah, you missed a big opportunity. You missed a big opportunity. So you got to be careful about tax loss harvesting and just selling things and just kicking them to the curb. You don't want to do that automatically. Yeah, you know, that means you gotta, you know, you got to balance, Steve. That's what it boils down to. you got your quest for tax loss candidates with the portfolio and individual security considerations. You know, if you want to unlock the tax law sales by selling something that's depreciated, you can't immediately replace it with the same exact security. So there's something called a wash rule. So let's say you sell, you know, IBM stock or whatever, and you can't go and buy that within 30 days. That's right. Um, so, but you could buy an, an ETF or, or a mutual fund that has a heavy, you know, presence in IBM. So you got to be careful. There are some rules that when you sell something, you can't immediately buy it back um, within the 30 days. That's called the wash rule. So there are some technical things that we're talking about here. Yeah, in fact, I mean, usually what we would suggest is if you're going to do tax loss harvesting, buy something very similar to it. Mm-hmm. Like yeah. There's a different fund maybe that invests in emerging markets. So right. you could sell one emerging markets fund and buy another one that's, that's right. almost identical to it. Just a different security. Um, different security, exactly. So you can still accomplish that. Um, you know, the other one is rebalancing without considering the tax consequences. You know, year-end reviews are, are often when they come up or is a time you want to do rebalancing. You know, you want to trim the securities that are highly appreciated while boosting the positions that have fallen in value. And that's called rebalancing. And, you know, we do that systematically. It's a disciplined process where we sell a little bit of what's high and buy a little bit of what's low. And it also reduces the portfolio's risk level while you're doing that. But even though rebalancing is sensible from that standpoint, optimizing your portfolio, it has the potential to kind of jack up the transaction and tax costs in your portfolio if you're not careful. And that's one reason why it's usually advisable to concentrate rebalancing in tax sheltered accounts like like IRAs, 401ks, where trading costs are low and selling doesn't trigger a big tax hit. On the flip side, you know, uh, it, it's worth employing, you know, kind of a lighter touch in taxable accounts. But if it's time to rebalance, you, you certainly want to rebalance. I wouldn't let taxes drive your mm-hmm. rebalancing. Right. But it's something to be mindful of. Yeah, no, I agree. I agree. Number four here on the list, Steve, is is buying ahead of a distribution. So if you do this portfolio review and you're, you're light on certain asset classes or categories, be careful what you add 
to correct those imbalances during the fourth quarter, and that's because mutual funds have capital gain distributions, um, typically in December, uh, the, the beginning part of December. And, you know, if you put money in a mutual fund that has one of these distributions, specifically in a taxable account, um, you know, you're going to have a big tax bill. So right. you want to make sure that you understand that if you're going to buy a mutual fund on December the 1st, a week later, there may be a big distribution. So you want to make sure you understand the timing of, you know, investing into a, a taxable account. The last one here on the list, Steve, is, is similar, you know, dodging capital gain distribution. So if you expect a fund that you've owned for a while to make a sizable distribution, and you, again, this is a taxable account we're talking about. You, selling preemptively can make sense if you wanted to lighten up on that position anyway. Uh, you know, so part of this is tax driven. But I agree with you. Making decisions based on taxes alone is is not the right answer. It's a piece of the puzzle. Um, but you want to make sure you look at your portfolio. There are some things that you can do at year end which can save you on taxes and also kind of meet some of your other other goals of staying in balance making sure you're, you're properly diversified and making sure it kind of meets your, your, uh, your financial plan. Exactly. Yeah, good topic. Okay. That leads us up here to our question of the week. Yeah, this question has to do with the uh, election. You know, we've, Imagine that. Yeah, that's right. We've both been getting a lot of questions about um, you know, their investments. Should we go to cash before the election? You know, there's a lot of concern. There's going to be a big drop um, the, you know, the day after the election based on the results. And, and obviously our, our answer, is most of you probably know, is you should not make any rash decisions. No one knows what the markets are going to do. Um, we've, we've seen the studies and the stats historically that you know, whoever wins on election day doesn't drive the stock market long term. That's exactly right. My answer is very simple. Think Brexit. Brexit. Yeah, there you go. Brexit. I mean, you know, we had this one day big drop, and maybe that happens on Election Day if there's some big surprise. But, you know, I mean, in a matter of a week, it washed out and came all the way back, and it was just it was just nothing. Yeah, it was, it was a great a, third quarter after that. It was a non-event, and, and that's the way elections typically are. I mean, you get a little blip maybe around Election Day, but... It is not going to drive the stock market long term. It's the economy, it's earnings, it's growth of earnings. Mm-hmm. That's what drives the stock market. And who's sitting in the White House is not going to affect it that much. Maybe long term, but they're not going to affect it in the short term. Right, so right. The policies it, and procedures they have do certainly impact it, but that's a long term type It takes deal. a long time for that to happen. So good question of the week. All right, and that leads up to our last topic here, and that is – um, real estate. If you have real estate, is a property manager for your rental properties, is that worth the cost? So if you have rental real estate, if you have, if you have uh, investments that are real estate, uh, should you hire a property manager? Um, this is a great article out of realestatemoneycrashers.com, uh, Martin Dasky, Dasko, I should say. And, you know, I mean, it makes a good point here a lot of people, we see a lot of people that have real mm-hmm. estate, yeah, they have real estate investments, and it's a great way to add some income in retirement, particularly if you're handy and you can fix it up. But you got to realize it's not a passive investment. There is a lot to involved with, mm-hmm. it with is. managing real estate, particularly rentals um, like that. So, you know, so purchasing property, renting it out to tenants, that can provide a healthy income stream to investors for a long time, but no matter what kind of property it is you purchase, commercial, residential, single family, multi-units, there are going to be hassles and headaches that are inevitable. You know, there's lots of patience, hard work that goes into finding the right tenants, maintaining the property, 
and acting responsibly as a landlord. So unless you're owning and managing rental properties is kind of your full-time job and that's your profession, um, or if it's just a fun sideline job, that's great. But you might want to consider a property management firm otherwise to kind of streamline your duties, uh, particularly if you're out of the area. Mm-hmm. You know, if you're not there all the time, you, you definitely might want to hire somebody to do that. So, but before you sign on with one of those, be sure you consider the pros and cons. So we're going to talk a little bit about that, what that really means, and what delegating the task to a dedicated firm uh, would mean for you. Um, because managing rental properties, as I just mentioned, it's not a passive activity. Yeah, you're right. And so, so what does a property management firm do? I mean, the responsibilities that come along with property management, you know, firm include screening the credit histories, uh, the background of applicants, drawing up the leases, processing rent payments. I mean, there's things like maintaining tax and legal records, dealing with maintenance issues, complaints. I mean, the list goes on and on and on. And depending on the size of your property, these tasks alone can constitute more than a full-time job. So active investment. Think that. When you get into real estate, it is definitely active. It is definitely active. There's a lot to do there. Yeah, and every landlord, they have to decide whether those tasks required for property management are, are suited better for them or for, you know, a dedicated firm. And the first thing to consider whether you have the is whether you have the time or not and expertise to manage your own property. You know, are you comfortable doing the basic handyman tasks? Um, or do you know somebody that's dependable who is that you can hire yourself? Um, you know, do you know a reasonable, a reliable electrician, plumber who offers same-day services? Do you mind being on 24-7 call <laughs> um, to handle issues that are, are going to arise? Mm-hmm. You know, there's going to be, you know hot water heaters and there's going to be air conditionings that break and it's going to be toilets that are having problems and they're going to call you for those things because they don't own the property. So, you know, are you, and are you also, are you comfortable confronting tenants over complaints or late payments? I mean, that's a biggie, you know, whether, would you rather spend your money and your time um, delegating those responsibilities and, and doing other things that you love so those are kind of the questions. So, you know, while hiring a property management firm can eliminate the after-hour phone calls and mitigate the day-to-day hassles, it's never fully going to relieve you of the management responsibilities as long as you own the property. There are some maintenance issues, you know, such as determining whether to repair or replace a dishwasher or, you know, the stove or the refrigerator, or, you know, some other uh, appliance they're going to require you to assess the situation and determine how to proceed. Also, certain tenant problems such as eviction, you know, are also going to need your attention. I mean, a management firm can't totally handle all those type of issues for you. They can help, but they're not going to totally handle it. So if you're looking for a firm to take off every single worry off your shoulders, you're going to be disappointed. But if you want assistance to kind of lighten the load, um, a good property management firm can provide a wide range of valuable services to do that. Yeah, one of those, Steve, is, is dealing with tenants. I mean, a big part of the what a property management firm uh, would do is, is deal with tenants on a day-to-day ba- basis. I mean, if you're uh, the bleeding heart kind of person who uh, falls for every sad story out there, um, then you probably need a manager because there's going to be a lot of issues that you're going to come across. Yep. And, you know, their responsibilities include advertising open units, interviewing and screening uh, prospective tenants, maybe drawing up leases, handling move-ins and move-outs, dealing with complaints, um, collecting rent, 
Um, you know, and sometimes even managing the evictions. I mean, that's a that's a very emotional process. So having someone do that for you may be worthwhile. So, um, you know, property management firms should have a familiarity with legal aspects of the landlord-tenant relationship. And that also includes understanding the rights of each party and how to proceed legally in the event of a problem um, when it happens, not if it happens. So. I That's think a exactly lot of times, right. you know, the the emotional side is what people struggle with. Yeah, definitely. If you're the bleeding heart type and you can't you can't push somebody out when they need to or be firm on the payments mm-hmm. and the consequences of, of them not paying you, you definitely need a property management firm. I mean somebody's gotta be the total line. It's a business transaction. They can't just you can't just let people run, you know, rough shot over you. Um, that would be a good case for having one. Another thing, though, is paperwork. You know, for some people, one of the best aspects of hiring a property management firm is that they handle a good deal of the paperwork. Um, you know, a firm can relieve you of trying to find and screen tenants, checking credit reports, conducting good background checks, drawing up lease agreements, billing and accounting for monthly rent. You know, also, if you offer, like, subsidized housing, uh, there's a lot of additional paperwork associated with that, mm-hmm. so you might definitely want a yeah. property management firm. But if you only have one or two rental properties with long-term tenants, I mean, dealing with the paperwork shouldn't take more than a few hours a month, um, and it shouldn't occupy more than maybe one drawer in your file cabinet. Uh, so, you know, if you're if you own an entire building though, and you have you know turnover rates, or you have you know a half dozen properties you know that volume and time commitment can add up quickly yeah no doubt yeah so over the course um of time uh you know having a property management firm uh will definitely help but you're still going to be responsible for maintaining the record of the documents relating to taxes insurance mortgage payments um not to mention receipts from property management firm itself so you can't totally eliminate the paperwork, but it definitely will help. So that's one aspect of it. Another one is repairs and maintenance. You know, if your building has a new roof, new water heater, um, it's kind of reasonable to assume that you won't be called on for repairs as frequently if it's a newer property. But if you have an older property with older features, you're going to have more repairs. And that's something to consider. You know, if the roof and plumbing are old, the baseboards are peeling, physical structure of the unit has seen better days, you could face frequent calls and expensive repairs. As a landlord, you don't just own a house or a building, you're also likely to own the land that it's sitting on. So in addition to repairs and maintenance for the building, you're going to need to devote some resources to make sure the land is attractive and well-maintained and you can attract renters with a nice-looking piece of property. That means planting, keeping flower beds, you know, repairing pathways, mowing lawns, you know, sprinkler systems, all those kinds of things that mm-hmm. you have to do outside. So you, you you may authorize a property management firm to handle repairs under certain dollar amounts at, at its discretion, but you still need to authorize the costly repairs. You can't just totally take your hands off. You're going to have to be involved at some point even if you have a property management firm. Yeah, and so, you know, a lot of people say, well, how much should a management firm get paid? And so the, the national average is anywhere between 4 and 12%, and obviously that's based on the number of properties you need managed, the number of units, you know, the location, the condition, and also what services are included in that. So you got to make sure that you understand what those services look like because they can it can vary widely. Yeah, it totally depends on what kind of services they're doing. 
Um, yeah, eight to twelve percent, I think, is more normal. But I it can be on so. the lower end if it's a big property, if there's Maybe. a lot of properties. Um, you know, also, it, it, it talk about you know a big determining factor would be uh, what other type of fees they charge. You know, um, in addition, you could be charged. 80% to 100% one month's rent for procuring a new tenant. Mm-hmm. Um, so you have to look for that whenever you're you're talking about uh, a property management firm. Um, also, I mean, not all pricing structures are the same. Some companies will charge a flat per month rate, which, again, varies due to the area, duties performed, and the value of the rental, while others will charge a percentage rate, as we talked about before, the 8 to 12% range. The price, though, can fluctuate based on the number of properties they're handling. The term typically is like for 12 to 24 months. That's kind of what you're looking at. You know, they have the option to renew, um, but they can be drawn up so that they renew automatically. If either party opposes it, you can terminate, uh, you know, upon renewal. Or, of course, if there's any kind of breach of contract, they can mm-hmm. terminate as well. Yeah, and so, uh, you know, a key here, Steve, is making sure you understand what the services are included. So if you're paying 10%, you know, of your of your uh, revenue, does that include, you know, basic maintenance, um, you know, like, uh, you know, doing faucet handles, things like that, very, very small maintenance. Just make sure you understand as clearly stated in the contract. So I'm sure it'll most contracts will have that, but you got to understand if, if you're going to, you know, have a, a very high rate, then they should be providing some services to you. Yeah, and usually those fees are negotiable too. So you can negotiate these contracts with them. Um, but, you know, if you're turning a primary residence into a rental property, be sure to consult your insurance company as well. Make sure your insurance is adequate because landlord insurance is really what you need to cover uh, in the event of fire, vandalism, flood, other mishaps. Remember that even though you're delegating the task to an outside company, responsibility ultimately belongs to you. So you got to be in charge of it. Um, so, you know, just be sure that you kind of know what you're getting into when you buy rental properties. Mm-hmm. And, you know, if you need the help, you ought to consider a property management company. Um, you know, that's a good idea in a lot of cases. Okay, that leads us up here to our prescription of the week. Yeah, I had a client, Steve, that uh, told me recently when I met him that they actually had a check that was stolen out of their mailbox. They live in a neighborhood. and yep, I've had that happen before. Have you? Okay, that's right, you have. And so they um, they actually had to go and change all of their banking information and shut it down. So the uh, pres- prescription of the week is you may want to consider mailing you know big checks from a post office versus your mailbox. So... Theft is an issue um, in some cases. You know, we live out in the country a little bit, so we've had some issues with that as well. But that's something to consider. I would say any check um, mm-hmm. you ought to consider okay. because it doesn't matter how big the check true, is. True. What they're likely going to do, at least what they did in our case, was they took the check, they just took the numbers off the check, mm-hmm. and they printed a new check. Mm-hmm. They just printed and created a new check themselves with the numbers and with the check number higher than or with that check number on it that right. they knew hadn't been used. And then they, they just wrote up a different amount, yeah. a totally different amount, a higher amount. And they went to Walmart and just had it scanned. They didn't even – Walmart doesn't even keep the check. They just scan it and take the ETF the money right out of your account. So, you know, yeah, I mean – Yeah, you're we, right. Any check. That's a good good thought. Any check. They can we get take the numbers it to a, We it. take it to a blue box. If yeah. it's a – we're mailing out a check, which we try to do most of them online nowadays. Sure, sure. I think it's safer online, believe it or not. Yeah. Um, but take it to a blue box or take it to some closed uh, box. So that is our prescription of the week. That's a good one. 
All right, um, that leads up to a close for this week's edition of MoneyMD. Tune in next week to MoneyMD to hear more prescriptions for your financial help. Do check us on our website, moneymd.net. Email us your questions at info at moneymd.net. Give us a call, Richard Young Associates, 706-739-0725. Thanks for listening. Have a great rest of the week. Have a good one.